Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Romans again, chapter 5. <clears throat> Last week, we read verses 20 and 21. This week, we're not really going to move much. We're going to look at verse 20 again. Romans chapter 5, we're just going to read verse 20. Here's what it says. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now last week we talked about the idea of sin increasing when the law came. And we talked a lot about how sin increased. And you're, I'm always nervous about preaching that much just about sin. I, I felt that way when we were in Romans 1 and we were going through the list of all the sins that uh, the world was engaged in, which was resulting in God pouring out his wrath upon us. And I heard a story that kind of <laughs> touched on that idea. A story is told of a preacher who spent an entire sermon giving nothing but a litany of sins. In fact, he read through a list of actions that God had forbidden as sinful. There were some 100 and, no, excuse me, 65, 65 specific sins. So after the people heard all of that, after this sermon, he got a letter from one of his parishioners, the pastor did. It says, thank you, pastor, for teaching us about all those sins. There were several I did not know about and have not tried yet. <laughs> and so maybe that's an example of where the law was added, sin abounded, which is what we talked about last week. This week I want to tackle the second half of that verse. The second half of Romans 5.20 may be one of the truly great verses of the Bible. Even in the midst of a book in which all of the sentences are splendid, this one really stands out. It stands out like a beacon, really on a dark night. And the dark night that we've painted is that of sin. And sin increasing the horrible proliferation of sin in the world. And then we get to this verse. The beacon flashes out to everyone where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And it's difficult to do justice to this sentence, especially in English. It doesn't carry the same meaning that it did in the original Greek. In the New International Version, if that's what you're reading from this morning, you'll see that it uses the word increased twice. It says that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And Paul here is, he's making a contrast, not just a comparison. It's not like an equation where sin is on one side and grace is on the other. Paul could have said something like where sin increased, Grace increased so that five pounds of sin equals 
five pounds of grace. But again, this is not a comparative. This is a superlative. There really is no comparison. The scales are not equal. Sin is far outweighed by God's grace. And this is true in our lives. We live, as we're going to see this morning, in the presence of a superabundance of grace, far greater than the depths of our disobedience. So here in the Greek, Paul actually uses two words. And we don't get into the Greek too often, but I want to take a look at it this morning because it really explains this contrast. So the Greek word that refers to the increase of sin, the first word in that phrase, is based on a term polis, which we know that poly means more than one, uh, many. And so the word in Greek that comes from that is pleonazo. Pleonazo. And it has the idea of numerical increase. Numerical increase. So when the NIV uses that verb, it's not bad because to increase in number or to grow or to multiply is what he's talking about with sin there. As the number of sins increases. But the second word is different. The second word we see in the Greek is parousio. And it means to abound or to overflow or to have more than enough. It's not so much to do with numbers as it is to do with excess. But just in case we missed the point, Paul adds a prefix to the word, the prefix hyper, which we would say like superabundance, abundant excess. The word in Greek is huperisio. So the ESV uses the word abounded instead of increased. And it's really superabounded or hyperabounded. So many of you may know this verse from the King James Version. That's how I learned it growing up. And it just says that, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It uses that idea of abundance for both terms. But the English Standard Version, which we read from this morning, as well as several others, uses increase for the first word and abound for the second, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so I just want you to get the idea out of your head that this is some mathematical equation. Two sins equals two doses of grace. There is an excess, an abundance, a superabundance of grace poured out on our sins. But that's not as far as it goes. That seems pretty descriptive to me. But we have other paraphrases of Scripture, which say, like the New English Bible says, where sin was thus multiplied, grace immeasurably exceeded it. The Phillips translation, J.B. Phillips, says it this way, though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God his grace is wider and deeper still. So some, some of those writers of these paraphrases went even further trying to describe the difference between this increase in sin and the increase in grace. But that didn't seem to satisfy some of the commentators that I read as they went even further. 
Donald Barnhouse, who we've quoted in here many times and we'll do so again today, said that where sin reached a high water mark, grace completely flooded the world. Again, very colorful language to describe this. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said the idea is that of an overflowing, as if a mighty flood were let loose, sweeping everything before it. Indeed, we might well use the term engulfed. Such an abundance, such a superabundance, that it drowns and engulfs everything. That is the way Paul is describing grace set against our sin. So the law came into the world and sin increased, but grace superabounded. It was more abundant. It was excess. It flooded. It engulfed everything. And what Paul says of grace in this verse is really going to prepare us for next week when we look at verse 21, where it talks about how sin triumphed over man, but then grace triumphed over sin and now reigns victoriously. I want to tell you a couple of stories. Romans 5.20, the text here, is the text of John Bunyan. You have a quote in your bulletin from John Bunyan, which Isaiah didn't know. This is just one of those happy accidents. He didn't know we were going to mention this. But John Bunyan was an English Puritan preacher, and we know him best as the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. That book has been written in so many different formats. I mean, we had it for Matt when he was a kid. I've got it now for adults. I prefer the kids' version. Uh, It's easier to read. Um, Famous book, and that really reflects Bunyan's spiritual experience. But maybe it was best spelled out, his religious life in his devotional autobiography, and it was called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Now that kind of reminds you of our verse today, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. So the title taken from today's passage, as well as a passage we'll read a couple of times in 1 Timothy. Let me read that to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Bunyan was born in 1628. His parents were very poor. His father was a tinker who is a mender of pots and pans. And Bunyan took up the work for a period. He became known as the tinker of Bedford. He wasn't a good kid. He was quite reckless in his youth. He was immoral. And in time, he became greatly troubled By his acute sense of personal sin, he wrote of himself in those days that it seemed as if the sun that shineth in the heavens did grudge to give light. 
and as if the very stones in the street and tiles upon the houses did bend themselves against me. Methought that they all combined together to banish me out of the world. I was abhorred of them and unfit to dwell among them or to be partaker of their benefits because I had sinned against the Savior. But God saved John Bunyan and he gave him great peace. And the title of his autobiography is testimony to what he discovered that because he learned that no matter how great his sin was, the grace of God proved itself to be greater. I want to make a couple of points about this grace of God today, this superabounding grace. The first one is this. Grace is not withheld because of sin. Grace is not withheld because of sin. And we need to understand this clearly because in normal life, you and I don't operate this way, do we? If we're offended by someone, we tend to withdraw. We withdraw from that person. We restrain any natural favor we might otherwise show them. We're punishing them. And if it offends us greatly, we may find it hard even to be civil to them. We withdraw our grace from each other when we wrong each other. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just stating that's the way it is. God isn't like this. On the contrary, where sin increases, this verse says that grace superabounds. What a lesson for us. It doesn't say where sin increases, grace increases proportionately. If you sin against me a little, I'll show you a little grace. But if you really aggravate me, then I have to show you a lot of grace. No, it just says grace superabounded in excess, overflowing all those terms we looked at. And we're not just making this up. We can look at Scripture. What happened with Adam and Eve? When they sinned, they feared that God would withdraw His grace. And probably if you or I were God at that time, that's what we would have done. He had every right to do it. God had been so good to them that they rebelled against his one command. His one command was in Genesis chapter 2, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in, it, uh, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was their one prohibition. They broke it. And when God came to them calling in the garden, they hid. They were terrified thinking that the judgment that he gave to them in that verse would be executed right now. They probably thought he was coming to kill them. Instead, they found grace abundant. Donald Barnhouse again said this, Adam had not gone very far from the scene of his rebellion before the grace of God sought him, called him by name, pursued him in the obscurity of the grove where he was hiding. God did not withhold his grace because of Adam's sin. Instead, he made great promises of grace, announcing that the Messiah would come, the deliverer, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would destroy the destroyer and bring man back into fellowship with him. 
Although man sought to cover his shame with fig leaves, God intervened in grace and clothed the guilty pair with coats of skins in the very garden where they had rebelled. The first blood ever shed upon this planet was shed by God Almighty to provide covering for the man and woman who believed his word about the redemption that would be provided. Grace was not withheld because of sin. Grace was given in spite of sin. That's Adam and Eve. It was the same in the days of Moses. You remember the people came to Mount Sinai and the law was given. On the mountain, God told Moses this from Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. But while God was saying that to Moses, the people that he had brought out of Egypt were breaking not only that command, but probably many, many others. They were having a huge party at the base of the mountain. Was this a barrier to God's grace? Did God withdraw his grace from the Israelites? Again, Barnhouse says, not at all. On the very mount whence God looked down on the awful sin of the people, he gave the specifications for the tabernacle, for the altar, for the priesthood, and the method of approach that honored his holiness and was consistent with his justice. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Sin rolled as high as Mount Sinai. The grace of God rolled as high as heaven. It's the same when we get to the New Testament. Peter denied his Lord with oaths and cursings. Jesus didn't condemn Peter. Instead, Jesus appeared to him personally after the resurrection. And you can see this in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he recommissioned Peter to service in John chapter 21. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Jesus said. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter said. Well, then you must feed my lambs and take care of my sheep, was the response of Jesus. We can say the same thing about Paul. Paul, the apostle that God used to give us the very text we're reading today. His testimony is nearly identical to Bunyan's, which is why Bunyan paraphrased Paul's words to describe his own experience. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. How many times did you hear grace in that passage? Near the end of his life, Paul wrote to his young co-worker Timothy, this is a passage we've already read once. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed. Here we see the same two words from Romans chapter 5, combined into one. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So we've talked about some rascals here. We've talked about Bunyan. We've talked about Adam and Eve. What about the people at the foot of Mount Sinai and Peter? Paul. But now we come to you. Today, most people actually have very little awareness of their sin, which shows how desperate our condition has become. But perhaps you are one who, like John Bunyan, is very conscious of your sinfulness. You may even have considered yourself to have forfeited all hope of salvation because of some sinful action that just rises up in you and it seems like a great dam for the grace of God and it can't get past it in your mind. I don't know what your transgression would be. It may be of some gross sexual sin or adultery. It may be some kind of a perversion. Perhaps you've stolen from your employer or from your parents or from someone else who's close to you and thus violated trust as well. Maybe you've destroyed somebody's life work or their reputation. Maybe even murder. Doesn't have to be those big uh, things. Perhaps you remember a time in your life when you were so tyrannized by sin that you lashed out against God with blasphemies. You cursed God. And when you think back on those days, and they may not have been so long ago, you shudder and you tremble as John Bunyan did. Maybe you're sure that you have passed all bounds of hope. There's nothing for you. That you're destined to be lost eternally. If you are a person like that, fortunate enough at least to know of your sinfulness, then this text today is a great cry of hope for you. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin multiplied, grace overflowed. No dam erected by sin can hold back this abundant flow of God's grace. Grace is never withheld because of sin. Not Adam's sin, not the people at Sinai, not Peter, not Paul, not John Bunyan, not yours. Therefore, you can still come to Jesus Christ right now. Regardless of what you've done, you can repent and find full forgiveness today. Have you done that? If not, will you do it today? Paul said that even God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance. 
He's not just kind for kindness sake. It's to lead you to repentance. At the end of our service, I'm going to be down on the front row here. I would love to talk to you about this. This can be the day that you experience God's grace in all of its superabundance, in all of its fullness, and the guilt of sin and the penalty of sin can be washed away. But you have to come. You have to come to Jesus. And I'd love to tell you how to do that. The second point about grace I want to make is that God's grace is never reduced because of sin. It's never withheld, but it's also never reduced. There's an unlimited supply of his grace available. Some people almost mistakenly think that there's only so much grace to go around. Because that's the way it is with us. And you can think of words such as patience. How much patience do you have? Well, after you've talked to me, you probably have about half as much as you started with. And then you go talk to the next person and it depletes and on down the road. Well, God is not like that. We think that there's only so much to go around. We see God is seeing all these sinners in need of salvation. So he walks around with his bucket of grace and he finds the first guy. He's pretty good. He's a very righteous man. He doesn't need a lot of grace. So he just kind of sprinkles a little grace on him, and that's enough. His wife, however, is sort of a pill. And it takes more than just a sprinkle. Maybe it takes a few, you know, cupfuls of grace in order. No, I'm not talking about you. Uh, so it takes more than a couple of sprinkles to save this woman. She is in need of more grace. And then we get to the really rascally people in here. And by the time he's made it to the, he's to the back, he's scraping the bottom of his bucket. There's not much grace left to go around. That's not the way it is at all. It's a gross misunderstanding. Grace is not something that is depleted as it covers our deficiencies, our sins. Furthermore, by God, his grace provides 100% of what is necessary to save 100% of the people that he is saving. There is never any shortage. It's not doled out in proportion to our misdeeds. The superabundant supply, the overflowing excess, never runs dry. There's another error that's sort of related to this first one. Imagine... Someone who was once walking very closely with God, but then fell into great sin. I don't know what the sin is. We have examples in scripture like King David that comes to mind with most people. Having fallen into sin, we now think we have forfeited something of God's grace. It's if originally we'd been given 100% of God's grace, but now we're kind of wasting away this treasury by our major transgressions. You ever find yourself thinking that? Maybe you think you were saved, and in the past you were, you were a first-class Christian, but now, having sinned, you're condemned to being only a second-class or a third-class. God's grace is not sufficient for you any longer. 
Well, your sin did not keep God's grace from flowing to you in full measure when you came to Christ. And it will not keep his grace from you now. It's still there. Now look, I just, I need to probably address the same concern that Paul had, which he gets to next. I'm not suggesting for a moment that God condones sin. God hates sin so much that he sent his son to die for it. He hates the sin that's in you. And he will continually work to remove it and to give you victory over it. But the point I'm making here is that God will never diminish his grace to you because of your sin. In fact, I mean, I hope I can say this without being misunderstood. It is in your sin that you will find grace to be abundant. The reason Paul was such a champion of grace is that he had been forgiven so much. And so have we. And don't think that you can fall from grace. I mean, I know there's a phrase in the Bible. Let's not be afraid of it. It's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. It says, you have fallen away from grace. It sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? That's in the New International Version and the, New, uh, the English Standard Version. Let me tell you what it means. It does not mean that you've lost your salvation. You have fallen away from grace. doesn't mean you're not saved anymore. What Paul is saying here is that now you've fallen in to law as a way of living. You see, the Galatians had been taught the true gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. But they'd been confused by some Jewish legalists who had made their way into the body there and had been teaching that it was necessary for them to maintain their salvation, that they keep the entire law of Moses, including being circumcised. Remember, all the people here in the region were not Jews. So you could imagine that these Jewish legalists were insisting that the Gentile believers must be circumcised. Paul sent a letter to this church to refute that heresy and to encourage the Galatian believers to stand firm in the freedom that Christ had purchased for them on the cross and not to become entangled again in legal bondage. Here's what the text says. You know, context is important. Starting in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? But when you pull it out by itself, it's a little frightening and people misquote it all the time. You cannot fall from God's grace. You do not lose your salvation when you fall from grace. That would be diminishing it. What happens is that you fall into the law. You've chosen another way. You become a miserable legalist instead of a joyous Christian. But even then, grace is still working to deliver you from your bondage. Back when we were in Romans chapter 3, I told you the story of John Newton. John Newton was called the slave of slaves 
miraculously uh, delivered by God. And I want to tell the story here again because today's text applies to his life. Newton lived from 1725 to 1807. He was raised in a Christian home and he was taught verses of the Bible, but the problem for him was that his mother died when he was six and he was sent off to live with some relatives who hated Christianity and made fun of the verses that he knew. They mocked Christianity. So one day at an early age, Newton went to sea as an apprentice seaman. He was a wild and dissolute child. In those, in those days, he was very much like John Bunyan had been. He had the dubious reputation, this is a good one, of being able to swear for two hours without repeating himself. I don't know anybody that can do that. But I don't really, you know, run with that crowd. Um, two hours. At one point, Newton was conscripted into the British Navy. But he deserted he was later captured and beaten publicly for his punishment. Eventually, he was released into the Merchant Marine and he went to Africa. And you may ask, why Africa? Well, according to his memoirs, he said, there was only one reason that I might sin my fill. In Africa, Newton fell in with a Portuguese slave trader and he stayed in this guy's home. Well, when the slave trader went off on trips... He left the house to the person who was in charge when he was gone. That would be his wife. This woman hated all white men, and she took out her hatred on Newton. This is how it went. For months, he was forced to grovel in the dirt, eating his food from the ground like a dog, and beaten unmercifully if he touched it with his hands. In time... This underweight, thin, emaciated Newton made his way to the coast somehow and was picked up by a British ship. The British ship was going up the African coast on its way to England. When the captain of the ship learned that this young man knew something about navigation as a result of his time in the Navy, he made him a ship's mate. But Newton hadn't learned any lessons at all. Even then, he fell into trouble. One day when the captain was ashore, Newton broke out the ship's supply of rum and got the whole crew drunk. He was so drunk himself that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, he fell overboard and records say that he would have drowned if the crew hadn't come to his assistance. As I close the story about John Newton, I'm going to ask our worship team to return to the stage. Near the end of the voyage... They were approaching Scotland, and the ship came into a storm. It was really bad weather. The ship was blown off course. Water poured in. It began to sink. The storm lasted for days. This young man, this young troublemaker, was sent down into the hold to pump water. Newton was terrified. He was sure that the ship would sink and that he would drown. But there, in the hold of the ship, as he pumped water desperately for his life, the God of grace, whom Newton had tried to forget, never forgot him. 
brought to his mind the Bible verses that he had learned at home as a child. The way of salvation opened up to John Newton, and he was born again and transformed. Later, when the storm had passed and he was in England, Newton began to study theology and eventually became a distinguished preacher, first in a little town called Olney and later in London. Now, about that storm, William Cooper, who we've talked about before in here, he was a British poet. He became a personal friend of Newton and lived with him for many years. He wrote this just about the storm. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And Newton also became a poet as well as a preacher. And if you don't know who John Newton is, you will now. As he declared, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Newton was a great preacher of grace because he learned on a very personal level that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He is an, ex an outstanding example of the two truths we've looked at today, that grace is neither withheld nor reduced because of sin. If you haven't figured it out already, the underlying truth of all this is that God can save anybody. And he can save you today, whether you're like John Bunyan or John Newton or Adam and Eve or the people of Israel or Peter. Or Paul. All of these great sinners who were later able to do great things for God. Don't you let this be the day you take the offer of God seriously? Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Let's pray together.